special podcast from Pod Academy for Index on Censorship magazine. Some of the work that has occupied me the most in the last few years has been around trying with colleagues to, to help ensure that the South African press remains as free as it is now. And I do think we, we still enjoy a robustly free environment in South Africa. You can open any copy of the Mail and Guardian and indeed of, of some of our competitive papers and find stories there that any government in the world would find challenging. That's Nick Dawes, who until last month was editor of South Africa's Mail and Guardian newspaper. Nick has a formidable reputation as an investigative journalist and as a campaigner for press freedom. His last two years at the Mail and Guardian have been marked by tough struggles between leading South African journalists and the South African government, which he explained to Rachel Jolly, editor of Index on Censorship magazine, as he prepared to take up a new role with the Hindustan Times in India. We are not, certainly in any explicit way, prevented from publishing those things. And even the implicit pressures, I think, we generally withstand very well, and as, indeed as well as, as anywhere in the world. But we have had to devote considerable energy to ensuring that gathering threats to that level of freedom are defended against. And they have come from a number of different places. The first was the proposal by the African National Congress to adopt a statutory form of press regulation, what they called a media appeals tribunal, which was to have members appointed by a parliamentary committee. That would have meant direct political involvement in the process of adjudicating press complaints. We, we've had a reasonably solid self-regulatory mechanism in South Africa, but I think one that was um, in some ways under-resourced and not adequate to the growing complexity of its task. And I think that the Media Appeals Tribunal threat did focus minds in that regard. And we did a lot of work to improve and make more independent the press complaint system while fending off proposals for statutory regulation. And the ANC very much broadly accepted those changes and has substantially backed away from a media appeals tribunal. There are still voices in that party which are calling for statutory regulation. So the fight mm -hmm. is not completely over, but I think we made a great deal of progress. And I think in the process, we actually made the, the independent regulatory system more credible rather than less credible. The threat which really attracted much more attention in some ways because it was more obvious um, easy to understand was the Protection of State Information Bill. How happy or, or not are you with where you got to at this stage? I mean, you, there were some changes. How, as a, a high representative of the media, um, how do you think you did on lobbying for those changes? Well, I think we must say a few things about this. Firstly, it takes place in an international context of um, the growing use and abuse of this kind of legislation, including in established democracies uh, like the US and the UK um, and in Europe. Canada and this legislation in that sense is not in its first form it would have been it would have suffered badly by international comparison in its current form it's probably about as bad as some of the international comparative jurisdiction instruments that are out there but those uh, instruments should absolutely not be our standard our standard in South Africa should be a const our constitution which requires that any legislation which has the potential to infringe on basic rights, 
is only acceptable to the extent that it is consonant with an open democracy. Section 32 of our Constitution is very clear in that regard. And we made very, very substantial progress, I think, in um, ameliorating some of the worst aspects of this bill. Yeah, we didn't get it all the way over the line, and I yeah. don't believe it is yet fully consonant with that requirement of the Constitution. So there will be uh, a court application um, to review the legislation on the basis that there are substantial aspects of it that, that remain inimical to press freedom and freedom of information more broadly. The wider victory, however, is that freedom of information as a result of the campaign against the bill has become a, a issue of broad public discussion and broad public engagement, not just in uh, newsrooms or in metropolitan salons, but in very poor neighborhoods um, and remote parts of the country. And I think that is a, that's perhaps a bigger victory than anything we won on the page. What impact will that have over time? I mean, just keeping those discussions in the in the public square is obviously important. Keeping the pressure on legislators. Yeah, I mean, I think um, again, there's an international context to this, as we are as we are learning with the furore around um, Edward Snowden's revelations and the Guardian. But I think what it, what it helps to do is create a climate of support for whistleblowing. So, for example, trade unions have been very much involved in the campaign against this legislation because they view and have come to view uh, whistleblowing as essential to their ability to obtain justice for workers. And as a initially as a rallying point, we had this legislation, but I think what we begin to develop out of it is a whole range of very practical and very tactical activism around freedom of information, around the value of whistleblowing, around um, the virtue of leaks and their publication, which, uh, which starts to become part of the political culture, not just the media culture, but the broad political culture. And that's really of inestimable value. That's how you take the fine words of the Constitution and make them live on the street and in the shop floor um, and in government departments. You know, while I've been editor, we've focused heavily on a few different things. One of them was making the Mail and Guardian a much more digital news operation, make it function, make it capable of breaking news through the week, make it capable of engaging a whole different set of audiences online and through social media and so forth. And we've had a really considerable amount of success there. You know, we're by far the most engaged news organization in South Africa on social media with, with many, many multiples of much bigger competitors, uh, Twitter followers, Facebook followers, and so forth. We do a lot more video um, than any of our competitors, which, which readers seem to like and, and, and engage with a lot. We have very, very rapid uh, growth in our online traffic, way, way above the, the benchmark. Um, we're doing, we've had very rapid growth in mobile, and we're actually selling tablet editions, iPhone editions, Android editions with some success. So that was one big focus. Another focus was to say, how does one make financially sustainable the kind of journalism that the Mail and Guardian does? Part of the answer is being ready for the future and making the transition to digital without undercutting either our sustainability or our journalism. And the other part is about, has been about saying, well, okay, there are things that we can do because of our position in this news environment and because of our position on the continent, which are actually worthy of non-profit type funding. And we've created a number of non-profit initiatives within the Mail and Guardian that bring together funding from, 
from the MNG, which speak to the belief of this paper and its owners and its board that great journalism is part of our commercial success, but that also say there are some things we are not going to be able to fund. So, for example, we have taken our investigative, what was the, our in-house investigative team, and created a substantial investigative nonprofit called the Mellon Guardian Center for Investigative Journalism. And what mm -hmm. that does, and it doesn't just break stories for the M&G, which, you know, perhaps on its own, we, we wouldn't expect a non-profit contribution to, but it really helps to develop the climate for investigative journalism. And it does that by training young and mid-career investigative journalists, both from competing South African papers, but also from across particularly the Southern African region. So we have people coming in to work with us from Zambia, from Mozambique, from Namibia, from Zimbabwe. Uh, from Tanzania, who develop critical skills while they're doing that. We also That unit also has a specific mandate to do advocacy around freedom of the press and freedom of information. So its managing partners, particularly uh, Stefan Sprimmer, spend an enormous amount of time in some very careful uh, work, which has included a range of, of, of little trumpeted successes, like ensuring, for example, that in our company's legislation, companies are still forced to disclose their shareholders, something that was set to disappear from our law uh, if he hadn't caught it and, and paid that level of attention. We've created a similar model with health journalism, something which is kind of woefully neglected both here and in the region, despite the scale of all the issues. So public-private partnership, the Mellon Guardian puts in some core funding. We have some non-profit funding, development agency funding from the German development agency, GIZ, which also does training and which does kind of public service journalism, which we wouldn't ordinarily be able to fund. So these are all ways of ensuring that we can do great journalism, keep our public service mandate in mind and continue to survive um, financially. And at the same time, we've tried to keep the core kind of campaigning, tough, investigative and insightful journalistic DNA of the M&G. So, so, so those have been things that have been preoccupying me for the last uh, almost five years. And I've enjoyed them enormously. I, I, I feel thrilled every week um, at what we put out in print. I, I feel thrilled every day at what we're able to do online. We've also gr greatly expanded our Africa coverage. We now put out a specific Zimbabwe edition. And I think, I think our Zimbabwe team is doing some amazing work. And, and as we do more and more Africa stories from countries around the region, particularly more investigative stories, it's really exciting to see those stories get picked up uh, on social media in their home countries. I'm looking, for example, at the business interests of Botswana's ex-presidents or banking and political scandal in Zambia, stories which perhaps are not being told at home and which we are able to get out there. A lot of people always say about the media, it's for the elite, by the elite. What groups do you think in South Africa are still not being heard in the media and what would you advise them to do? So, firstly, I think that that's a, a, a relevant critique and one that and one that we have heard more of in recent years. And I think, in a way, it's been one of the values of the media regulatory debate is that some of the people who are concerned about the elitism of the press have engaged in the media de debate on the one hand on the side of press freedom, but on the other hand, quite critically in terms of who it is that the mainstream media serve and whose interests yeah. they serve. And I think that's been quite a quite productive in exposing a lot of media people, whether they're editors or, or journalists or academics, to, to aspects of the debate that they haven't thought about before. I, I sometimes think that critique is presented a little bit simplistically, but, I, but nevertheless, I think it's very valuable and important. My first piece of advice would be to colleagues in the media rather than those who are being ignored about how to get heard, because I think it's our job to 
tell stories in, that are, even if we have a metropolitan and elite audience, we, we need to understand how the stories of people who are traditionally marginalized in the press matter to them. So my first advice, I guess, would be to, would be to other journalists and to colleagues, which would be about getting out of town or mm-hmm. getting out of the suburbs and getting out from behind your desk. I think in every major media market, there's a, there's a media circuit of journalists and spin doctors and politicians and marketing people who sit around in nice hotels and bars and share information. And one has to break that circuit. And frankly, sometimes part of that circuit is, is, is even composed of academics and activists and other people who have the concerns of the poor front and center, but whose voices get represented in the press instead of the voices of the people actually affected. So that, that's the first thing I would say. And I certainly think that um, the dynamism of our journalism at the M&G has been increased by our efforts to do that. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Before the Marikana massacre, we'll call it that because that's what it was, last year in August, we deployed one of our reporters whose mandate it was to focus on social justice. She's um, on a non-profit fellowship called the Eugene Saldana Fellowship in Social Justice Reporting to look at the issues in the platinum belt. And she produced a very detailed, I think, 3,500-word report on the conditions of life around the Marikana mine, around how the community was uh, not being included in financial benefits from the mine, how they were suffering the environmental impacts of mining from dust and so forth, and how development levels around the mine were shockingly low. And it was we, we dedicated, I think, yeah, three pages or so of the paper to it, three, maybe four pages. And it, it's, at the time, it sunk without a trace. It, it received very little follow-up. But it was a story that spoke to some of the fundamental dynamics that informed the discontent that ultimately led to the rise of an alternative union, AMCU, on that mine and led to the violence which, which, which ultimately resulted in, in killing of many, many people. So there you had a story which might have seemed through a traditional metropolitan media lens not quite hard-edged enough, not quite close enough to our market or our audience to be relevant but turned out to be of fundamental relevance, even on a narrow perspective that, the, that this is a newspaper which serves a, um, a government audience, a business audience, an academic audience, and, a, and an urban audience. So, so as I say, my first advice would be to my, to, to my colleagues. And then I, I think, you know, in South Africa, we now actually have some very, very effective um, civil society organizations that are very skilled at, at helping some of these stories to emerge. Uh, organizations like uh, Equal Education, which works, um, as the name suggests, on improving South Africa's important mm-hmm. record in education, Section 27, which works on a range of health and sanitation and other issues. They're pretty good at connecting journalists with, with communities and with enabling communities and individuals in those communities to speak uh, for themselves. Yeah. The other thing that I've found in my own um, experience of this sort of reporting is that actually even though access to technology and to social media and these sorts of tools is more limited in poor areas, it's not absent. For example, we were able to pick up on a story about um, the water supply in Dipslot, a very large informal settlement outside Johannesburg, becoming polluted with sewage following a construction accident because I was riding my bike through the area and saw many, many long queues of of people queuing for water. And I tweeted about it. And I got a reply over Twitter from someone who follows me who lives in Dipslurt who um, explained uh, what had happened. And we got the story very quick. I obviously 
picked up on what he'd said. I got a reporter onto it. They started tweeting about it as well. And by the by by the next morning, uh, it was front page headlines in the Daily Press. It didn't really matter to me that it wasn't the Mail and Guardian that covered it first. Although I think we got a story online pretty quickly. But this person had been able to get his view in front of me, a person living in a very poor neighborhood, got his view in front of me in a way that he would never be able to do if he pitched up at the offices of the m So I think, you know, we've got to do um, more work as journalists, but savvy use of, of new tools by, by community activists really can make a difference as well. And I mean, I certainly notice it when people um, point out to me on, on social media areas where we're failing, stories that we're missing. And I think it's almost a new form of kind of soft regulation or, uh, you know, social attention getting. And, uh, you know, you can call it open mm-hmm. journalism, you can call it what, 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 what you like. It, it almost outsources a part of the editing function to a much wider community. You obviously have to keep your core mission and your basic values as a news organization in mind. But now a whole lot of people are going to help remind you what they are, and people should take advantage of that. The media organization in South Africa that's most relevant to rural communities, poor urban communities, is Vernacular Radio, which is almost completely controlled by the the public broadcaster, the SABC, which is in a very dire state. Mm. And it's kind of crazy in a sense to expect uh, newspapers to fill the gap that the public broadcaster should be filling in that regard. And I think there should be much more attention on what they're doing. And one of the strange things is that many of those who complain about the elitism of the urban press, which has always been elite in some respects, Mm -hmm. don't consume any of those media themselves, whether they are politicians or academics or whatever. They simply, they don't know the language. They're not interested. They're actually elitist themselves. Um, and I think much, much more attention should be paid there. Is there anything you see on the horizon in, in terms of digital, digital social media, etc., that is going to break down any more of those barriers? I think there's some quite innovative things going on around the world. I was hearing about a project in India, actually, where they're using text mes- messaging to text journalists journalists write up the stories and they go out and they sort of put them on a newswire i mean stuff like that that that's going to just continue to um to open it up isn't it yes i think it's going to accelerate you know we've there is the there are the famous examples from kenya ushahidi for example which which collated information around the 2008 election violence and and um problems with that election and you know i think there are many attempts to replicate that model the critical thing of course I think I think in many African markets you you have a situation where um, print media is politically important and politically under pressure, but actually not accessed by a very large portion of the population. And I think mm-hmm. many communities are going to leapfrog print, and they're probably going to leapfrog the web as well, and end up both consuming news and engaging with news providers on using mobile. And there are you know cheap Android phones on our are now making their way to the continent in numbers. 4G is starting to roll out um, in in a number of countries, and there are small groups of, of very smart developers um, in Kenya, in South Africa, in Ghana, in Nigeria, creating technologies that that people can use. I think also people are starting to find their own ways to use um, existing technologies. So I'm not. Um, you know, some of this stuff will be slow. Data is still very expensive for people. We, we must be careful not to not to overhype the situation as it stands. You know, it's not like mobile phones are going to usher in complete freedom of speech and democracy in highly contested markets tomorrow. And I think we must be careful not to adopt that kind of millenarian view of it. But at the same time, the new the new potential is is absolutely staggering. And I think we're going to see in the next um, five years, not even the next ten years 
approaches that we can't even imagine sitting here right now. And presumably in India, you're going to be on top of all those things pretty quickly. <laughs> well, I think I think the opportunity to do that stuff well in India um, is immense. And, um, you know, certainly Indian media organizations have mobile products and web products. Um, um, but I think there are opportunities to do a lot more with them and to make them much and to take much more advantage of the opportunity to bring readers into the process and bring the audience into the process rather than simply uh, having, having, using them as a publication channel. Mm-hmm. And um, clearly one of the questions people are, ha- have been asking is, you know, it's one of the reasons you're leaving because of what's been happening um, uh, in the Protection of State Information Bill. Does, does that sort of depressed you in any way that you think oh it's time to go i've got to i've got to move on somewhere else is that an element at all no absolutely not i mean in in fact i think the to the extent to which we have successfully pushed back on on aspects of the protection of state information bill the the extent to which we've been able to reform um press regulation without impinging press freedom um the extent to which the local uh, industry is starting to grapple with with better understanding its uh, post-print future. I think these are all actually very encouraging things. While, of course, I'm 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 disappointed and angry in some ways that that people who the very people who brought us press freedom in the governing party now seek to restrict it. I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not sad about it in a way that makes me feel despairing. Um, I think we're going through a, a very classical process of what happens when a liberation movement has been in power for a while and starts to see its hegemony challenged um, and reaches for the most convenient lever that it can in order to limit that challenge and try and, and try and hang on to its hegemony in, instead of really securing popular legitimacy by, by, by seeking to, to stop dissent. But that is a fraction of the ANC. It's not the entire party. And I think we, I'm encouraged and excited by the way that South Africans have been supportive of a free press and of freedom of information. So, mm-hmm. so no, I'm not, I'm not leaving because I'm miserable about the future of South Africa. There's not a push factor um, for me in, in going. I'm, I'm going because of an opportunity to learn some extraordinary things, to work in an extraordinary market with some very interesting people, um, and to be and to be exposed to what is going on in a in a wider media world, uh, so I'm attracted to to the the possibilities in India and the and the opportunity in India rather than um, despairing about South Africa. I'm absolutely not leaving as a, as a vote of no confidence yeah. in the country. Of course, um, with Mandela being very ill. He- all eyes are on South Africa at the moment, and and, we, and people see it as a, a sort of a very significant moment of change for the country. Is are we right to think of it like that? And does it feel like that from there? Yes and no. No, in the sense that Mandela has been quite ill for quite some time. Uh, as you probably know, his last public appearance was in 2010. And he has not been playing the elder statesman role within the ANC for a number of years now. So at a practical political level, this won't have a direct impact. 
there's certainly to the extent that people believe that Mandela is somehow keeping the country or has been keeping the country on course, you know, that that's just not correct. He very clearly handed over power in 1999. And while he did for a number of years after that still play an active role behind the scenes, um, it was a restricted role and it really has had completely ended already a number of years ago. But, but symbolically. So, well, so then there's the then there's the suggestion that people contain their worst tendencies because they think, you know, they imagine Mandela looking over their shoulder. And again, I really don't think that's the case. South Africa has a set of institutions which are challenged in many ways, um, particularly challenged by political appointments and cronyism and so forth, but nevertheless institutions which are which are capable of helping to resist uh, corruption, uh, authoritarianism, all of those sorts of things which people worry about. But, but I do think, nevertheless, that this moment is important for us because, in a sense, Mandela's legacy is more present to us than it has been. So what I'm saying is, in a sense, precisely the opposite of what the perception is. The perception has been that, symbolically, um, Mandela has been helping us to stay on course, despite being buffeted a little bit from one side to the other. I would say, on the contrary, that his legacy has has not um, had the prominence that it ought to in our national life, and it's been, you know, too easily dismissed by many South Africans, including many of our political leaders, who would say, mm -hmm. for example, that you know he went too easy on reconciliation, or he got it wrong on on, on economic issues. Um, and who therefore have not made his approach uh, front and center in their own decision-making. What's happening now is that the importance of his legacy is being brought back to us and in a way is closer to the center of national life than, than it has been in a number of years. So the sort of optimistic take would be that, that we, in, at, a, at a time like this, recall the immense value of his contribution and of his approach in a way that we haven't always um, recently. So I certainly don't think it's an inflection point in the sense that this is where the wheels come off for South Africa, as yeah. people believe. And to the extent that things do get tougher on a number of fronts in the coming years, it won't be because of Madiba's passing. It will be because of a whole lot of structural change going on in the ANC, going on in the economy, going on in our democracy. <laughs> listening. Index on Censorship is the voice of free expression. For more information, go to indexoncensorship.org. Pod Academy produces podcasts of current research and ideas. Go to podacademy.org.